We're going to read two uh, sections out of chapter 7. We're going to read from verse 14 to verse 24, and then we're going to read from verse 37 to verse 44. Jesus teaches at the feast in verse 14, and this is the Feast of Tabernacles. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. And then we move on to uh, later in the passage to verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the Scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And we end our reading at verse 44. May God bless his word to us today. Today I want to speak about conflict and the Holy Spirit. Chapter 7 marks a turning point in John's gospel. From here on, the opposition to Jesus will grow as if it's not been bad enough already. It's going to get a lot worse. And in fact, by chapter 11, the Jewish leaders are beginning to plot the death of Jesus, how they can kill him. And also from chapter 7, we find that people are starting to drift away from Jesus. And in fact, he becomes more and more isolated with just his 12 disciples and a few women sticking by him. Now, John, I think I said last week or the week before, that John continues in this section to look at the various Jewish feasts and the festivals. And he shows how they are a foretelling and they are a foreshadowing being fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. So in chapter 5, we had the weekly festival of Sabbath, 
whom Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And then in chapter 6, we've seen the background of Passover, and Jesus teaches that He is the bread of life. He is the Passover to end all Passovers. And now in chapter 7, we're moving into another feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. And this has moved on, although we've not much of a gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's a gap of six months. And so what we're into now is the Festival of Tabernacles, the end of September, early October. And the Festival of Tabernacles celebrated the grape and olive harvest, and it was a time of great celebration and thanksgiving. Now, Tabernacles was one of the more popular of the feasts. Uh, It was required, Jewish law required, that every male should go up to Jerusalem for this feast, or at least part of it. And there was an air of anticipation building in the city, because people were wondering, would a certain male come up to the feast in Jerusalem, Jesus of Nazareth? Now, earlier in the chapter, which we didn't read, Jesus suggests to His disciples that He might not go to this feast. He knows people are on the lookout for Him and not in a good way. And so He says to the disciples, I will go up in my own time. And this is another theme of John's gospel, the timing of Jesus aligning with the timing of His Father. And that's a theme that keeps coming up. But He will go in His own time because His time and His Father's time is perfect. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles was also known as the Feast of Booths, and I'm sure you know this, that the Jews would make makeshift structures of uh, maybe bamboo or wood or whatever, and they would put them in their yard or on the street, or indeed, if you had a flat roof, many of them had flat roofs in their houses, they they would build these little shelters on the roofs. And these uh, booths were to remind them of the time when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, and in the desert during the time of Moses. So as Jesus comes into the city, it is absolutely heaving with people, and there is a lot of speculation about Jesus of Nazareth. There is conflict, and there is confusion. In verse 11, it says, the Jews were watching Him, and they were asking, where is that man? And they were looking for Him, as I said earlier, not in a good way. They were looking to try and trap Him maybe ultimately to arrest him. So to those who were in conflict, who wanted to silence Jesus. But then there was another large group who were simply confused about who Jesus was. In verse 12, it says, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. So the people were not quite sure what to make of Jesus. There were the Jewish authorities who were conflicted and who were in conflict with Jesus. There was a large group of people who were confused about who He was. Was He a good teacher? Was He a charlatan? Was He the Messiah? Now, I think it's fair to say that this mixture of conflict and confusion always surrounds Jesus. He is one of the most famous people in history, but He's also one of the most misunderstood people in history. He always drives us to one of two conclusions. Either He is who He says He is and should be worshipped, or He is a liar and a deceiver and a charlatan and should be ignored. And there's really no middle ground between those two. Jesus came 
Uh, yes, as the Prince of Peace, we know Him as the Prince of Peace, and yet also there's uh, passages like Matthew 10 and 34 where Jesus says, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace. I didn't come to bring peace, but I came with a sword, a sword that will divide families. Because Jesus is, by His nature, a divisive person. He is the Prince of Peace, and yet He is also divisive, because He forces people to ask this question, who really is He? And so, in this passage in John 7, it says the Pharisees, uh, in verse 32, it says, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering about Him, and the chief priests sent temple guards to arrest Him. Now, we're living in a very interesting cultural moment in the West, in the Western world. For hundreds of years, the Christian faith and Christianity has been the majority religion. Much of our legal and government framework has been shaped by Christianity. But in the matter of a few decades, really running from about 1960 up to today, we are seeing that the Christian story and the Christian values are being undermined by our society a society which would once have been viewed as a Christian society. And so we're seeing the question of Christian values, we're seeing the wholesale throwing out of Christian norms, and especially in the area of sexuality. A ministerial colleague of mine, another Presbyterian minister, earlier this week sent me a little extract from a book called A Time for Mission by Samuel Escobar, who's a Latin American theologian. And this is what it says. Today, the Christian stance in the West has to become a missionary stance in which the quality of Christian life goes against the stream to the point that to be a Christian is the equivalent to being a resident alien. The same qualities required of pioneers who went to plant Christianity in the traditional mission fields have come to be required from Christians who stay at home in Western nations and who want to be faithful witnesses of Jesus. Legislation in the Western countries of Europe or North America ceases to be founded on Christian values. Rosemary Dowsett, who was a, a missionary of long ago, will be familiar, Dick and Rosemary Dowsett, to some of us. Uh, they, they once said this, neither the Lord Jesus Himself nor the early church regarded minority status as abnormal. It was only with the advent of Christendom that the church was seduced into believing that she should exercise majority control by force and not faith. And in parts of Europe, we are still paying the price for that wrong turning. Now, in our culture today, we are feeling the drip, drip, drip of secularism. We're feeling the drip, drip, drip of people who are hostile to Christian faith. Journalism, in general, is hostile to evangelical Christianity, and these two are days of conflict and confusion. But one of the interesting things I've, I've, I've found is that uh, for people who are diligent observers of our culture, it is interesting that some of the loudest, vo loudest voices pushing back against the secularism of our culture, some of the loudest voices pushing back against that are not actually Christians. I'm thinking specifically of people like Tom Holland and his book Dominion, or Jordan Peterson, the psychologist, who has uh, been on a tour recently in, of the West, and he's, he did a tour recently in, in London, and he was able to sell out uh, an arena of 12,000 in Wembley, and he simply speaks, and 12,000 people show up 
because they're hungry for something. They're hungry for truth. They're hungry for meaning. They see, especially young men, they see that this culture is very antagonistic to moral values that they have grown up with, and they're confused, and they're conflicted. And so they're going to people like Tom Holland. They're going to people like Jordan Peterson, or indeed to a lady who's written a book recently, Louise Perry, who has written a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now, as far as I know, none of these people are Christians, but whenever you read what they are writing, a lot of them, of what they write, is very sympathetic to Jesus Christ and to Christianity. In fact, Jordan Peterson, in his talks, very often refers to Genesis and Exodus. To their credit, although they have… they're not Christians, in fact, a lot of what they say veers towards good works salvation, but a lot of what they say to their credit is nevertheless leading people towards thinking about Christianity and the Bible and, and, and these kind of things. Many are looking for answers today. Last week I quoted from the Guardian newspaper, usually no friend to Christianity, and in a survey conducted by Professor Woodhead, it said, the younger the cohort, the smaller the proportion of atheists. Now, I find this fascinating. We are living in a fascinating cultural time. And it seems to me that what Jesus experienced in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is very similar to the culture here today in the Western world 2,000 years later. We are at the Feast of Christmas, and in the Feast of Christmas, the world pretty much goes mad, and the towns and the cities are full of hustle and bustle. But it is an opportunity because it is Christ Mass. It is about Jesus Christ, and I know it's hackneyed, He is the reason for the season, but it is a great opportunity to point people to Jesus. And we find that people in the world, like Tom Holland and Jordan Peterson and even Louise Perry, are encouraging people to look at the Christian message. But are we, the church, encouraging people to look at the Christian message? Because what I think <clears throat> most troubles me is that the church, which has the answer, we have the answer, which is Jesus, but the church is very much sleepwalking through all of this. We need to have an urgency to our prayers and a sharpening of our invitational and apologetic skills. We need as the church to regain a confidence in Jesus Christ, a lifting of our priorities, and as we seek His will for us as churches and Christians. And it's why in recent days and months, I, I make no apology that I have been emphasizing the priority of prayer, and especially of us praying together corporately. I wrote an article uh, in The Contact, I think my memory's going, but I think I wrote an article in Contact about prayer, didn't I? And I think in that article I said, I want us to pray as if it matters, as if it might change things, because I believe it does. And it was a plea, basically, for us to come to the corporate prayer meetings. Now, I've been going around the various prayer meetings. I try to get a prayer, to a prayer meeting at least once a week to try and get to one of them. And I've seen a slight increase in the one on Friday morning with toast. I've seen a slight increase in the one on push on Monday night. I'm not sure about the Saturday morning. It wasn't too great yesterday. 
And so I'm saying to, it, to you again, in the cultural moment in which we are in, we need to pray and not sleep. Because the world is going to hell in a handcart. We have the answer. And I believe that prayer is one of the ways that people, heart, people's hearts are softened. So can I encourage you again to take this seriously? If you care about the world, if you care about your friends, if you care about your family, if you care about your work, work, work colleagues, well, let's pray together and let's see a change a change in people's hearts and lives. And so when we come to Christmas season, we come to carol services, we've prayed for people. When we come to Alpha in January, we've prayed for people, and then we see people coming, and we see a new openness. It needs to be a priority. It needs to be a priority. Because there's conflict and there's confusion out there, and at the minute, is the church doing anything about it? Or are we just allowing people like Jordan Peterson to do something about it? And actually, he's leading people astray because it's a works righteousness. It's not the gospel he's preaching. There's religious stuff in there. There's the Bible in there, but it's not actually the gospel because he doesn't understand the gospel. But we do. You do. I do. It's what people need. And so, in these days of conflict and confusion, in the feast of Christmas, we need to be pointing people to Jesus. He's the reason for the season. He's the one that can make a difference to people's lives. He's the one who changes everything around. He brings signs of life. And then whenever Jesus is in the midst of all this, uh, this feast and all this conflict and all this confusion, he, it says in verses 37 to 39, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him or within them. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, these are amazing words, but let me, let me just take a step back and say, why were these so significant, what Jesus is saying here? Well, it was because of the symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles. As I said, we've looked at the Feast of uh, Sabbath, chapter 5. We've looked at the Feast of Passover, chapter 6. So now we're in the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the Feast of Tabernacles, it was a weekday-long festival. And as part of this uh, festival, there was a water-pouring ceremony. A golden flagon was filled with water from the pool of Siloam, and it was carried in procession led by the high priest back to the temple. And as the procession reached the water gate on the south side of the inner court, a trumpet sounded three blasts, and they all processed around the altar while the choir sang Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. When they reached Psalm 118, every meal they were holding a branch of willow or myrtle twigs in their right hand, and they would shake this willow or myrtle, and in the left hand they held a citrus fruit, and everyone shouted, give thanks to the Lord three times. Then the water and the wine offering of the day was poured out at the base of the altar. Now, all this symbolized four things. First of all, it symbolized the Lord's provision of water in the desert with Moses and the children of Israel. Secondly, it symbolized the current blessing of rainfall, which obviously in a hot country was very important, the blessing of rainfall for the harvest, for the grapes and the oil and the, the, the olives. 
Thirdly, it spoke of the Lord's salvation, and they thought of Isaiah 12 and 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And fourthly, it spoke of the outpouring and cleansing of the Spirit of God. It's based in Isaiah 44 and verse 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So that's the four things this represented, this Feast of Tabernacles. The Lord's provision of water in the desert, the Lord's blessing of water for the harvest, uh, the joy of salvation, and fourthly, the cleansing of the Spirit of God. So all of this is going on, and on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stands up and in a loud voice like a trumpet says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Sorry if I woke you up. But it was like a trumpet. Everyone listen to me. Anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Come to me. So for the week, they've had all this water thing going on. The flagging of water, the, the procession, the singing. And suddenly he stands up halfway through the feast. He says, come to me. Come to me. I will satisfy your thirst. I will pour out the Holy Spirit. So we see something of this extraordinary claim that Jesus was making. If you're thirsty, come to me. If you want blessing, come to me. If you're hungry, come to me. If you want the refreshing and the purifying of the Spirit, come to me. It was very uh, similar to what he said in John 4 and verse 14. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus has come as the bearer of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit. His gift of the Spirit will come in a few months, in about maybe nine months after this particular event, whenever Pentecost comes. And the gift that was given to certain individuals in the Old Testament will become the gift to the church in general, to you and to me in general. The Holy Spirit will be the one who will break through the conflict, who will break through the confusion and show people who Jesus really is. And whenever they discover Jesus, they will discover the true peace, the shalom of Jesus Christ. He has the answer to confusion. He is the light. He is the life. He is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus in verse 38 says, as the Scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within him, when Jesus says, as the Scripture says, the, the commentator said, well, there's no particular verse that, they have, that Jesus seems to have in mind. It's, it's more all the prophetic images bundled together. There's no text that completely lines up completely with a, a verse in the Old Testament. But one of the verses perhaps Jesus had in mind was Isaiah 58 and verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Leon Morris says, when the believer comes to Christ, he not only slakes his spiritual thirst, but he receives such an abundant supply that veritable rivers flow from within him. The believer becomes a blessing to others. The life-giving Spirit of Jesus flows from us. Martin Luther paraphrases the verse in this way. 
He that cometh to me shall be so furnished with the Holy Ghost that he shall not only be quickened and refreshed himself and delivered from thirst, but he shall be a strong stone vessel from which the Holy Ghost in all his gifts shall flow to others, refreshing, comforting, and strengthening them, even as he was refreshed by me. So as we bring the plane into land, is the river of the Holy Spirit flowing from within us? We have drunk of the Spirit. We have drunk of Jesus. We have fed upon Him. We have ate. We have drunk. And now the Holy Spirit is in us and should be flowing from us. So that as others are in our presence, they should be blessed by the Holy Spirit. We cannot give to others what we have not ourselves received. We cannot give to others what we have not first received from Christ. This morning, are you a dry well or a well-watered garden? Are you a broken cistern or are you a waterfall of the Holy Spirit flowing through you? Uh, last week, Kay and I bought a washing machine. Just thought I'd share that with you. It's a very good washing machine. Very expensive washing machine, but we didn't need it. I thought I will install this washing machine myself. Why are you laughing? <laughs> um, I've done this before. I know how to install a washing machine. So I did, and it looked pretty good. Uh, Kay said, should we switch it on? I said, well, switch it on. And we switched it on. It went around and around for a minute or two, and then it was this lovely digital display, and it showed E20. I thought, what's E20? So I went to the, the manual, and I looked up, or maybe it was Kay looked up, E20. The water's not getting into the machine. It may not be getting into the machine because it's not actually turned on. You know the way you've got to turn it on at the mains. Or another possibility is that there's a kink in the inflow pipe and the hose pipe getting into the machine. Perhaps there's a kink in it. So got the thing out. It's heavy. Got the thing out again. And lo and behold, there was a kink in the pipe. Everything else was going well, but there was a kink in the pipe and the water wasn't actually getting in to the machine. And so it wasn't able to do what it was meant to do. And so the morning I'm asking you this morning, is there a kink in the pipe and the Holy Spirit is not getting in and you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing and that joy is not really flowing that Amy was talking about with the kids because there's a kink in the pipe and the Holy Spirit's not flowing in and He's not flowing out. Maybe a kink of sin, maybe a kink of a lack of forgiveness for somebody, maybe the kink of just being so obsessed with the world that your heart for Christ is cold, and maybe the kink of you've forgotten how to pray, to read your Word, the Word of God, but there's a kink in the pipe. So today, are you a dry well? Or are you overflowing with the joy of the Holy Spirit and you're praying and you're inviting people to come to Carl's services and to Alpha and whatever? 
Are we open to the new wine of the kingdom that is flowing richly from Christ? Is the river of the Holy Spirit flowing through this church, or has it been clogged up and silted up by sin? Like the Pharisees of old, are we stuck in old ways and a refusal to see how Jesus wants to break through the break into new ground? Are we stifling the Spirit? Jesus is the answer to conflict. He's the answer to confusion. This world is hungry. It is thirsty. It is confused. And we have the answer. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to our hearts. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who flows into us and through us and out from us. And the world is hungry, the world is thirsty, the world is confused, but we have the answer in Jesus. He is the light of the world. He is the one who brings abundant life. He is the reason for the season, and He is the one who brings salvation. There is salvation found in no other name given under heaven, no other name but the name of Jesus. So, Father, help us to regain a confidence in the name of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to commit to pray. Help us to commit to, to seeing change. Help us to commit to seeing the new wine of the kingdom flowing through us and through this church and to reaching the people who are thirsty and hungry and lost. And even today, even this week, Lord, maybe there's something, some one thing we can do to say we're serious about this. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory and for our good. And God's people said, Amen.